Well, this morning, we're coming to the end of our series on the book of Ruth. I know we've seen just from what's been read out already this morning that the story of Ruth has a happy ending. Let's see if this works. It does. And many of us love stories with a happy ending. And they make us feel good inside. They're reassuring. They remind us. And when maybe we were children and we had bedtime stories read to us, which often ended with the phrase, and they all lived happily ever after. But you may have noticed that happy endings in stories aren't very fashionable anymore. See, we live in a very cynical age where we can't quite bring ourselves to believe in a happy ending. See, the films and the television series and the books that are really critically acclaimed today often don't have happy endings because that makes them more realistic. It makes them more gritty, more true to life. See, I read somewhere a few years ago that, that feeling sad was the new happy. That basically deep and profound people, it was suggesting, were often unhappy people, but actually they were proud of that fact because it made them brave and real about life. In, in the film, When Harry Met Sally, um, the student Harry tries to impress the girl he's just met, a girl called Sally, with his intellectual credentials. He goes, I bet you never think about death, do you? He says. Well, well, I spend hours. I spend days. Because every time I buy a book, I read the last page of it. So in case I die, I know how it ends. So that, my friend, is a dark side, he says. See, Harry boasts that he is deep. He has a dark side. Because he knows that sounds really brave and wise. See, the sign of sophistication and maturity in our culture is not expecting a happy ending, of growing up beyond that. And one reason why a lot of people don't like happy endings today is because they don't trust them. See, deep down, many of us, we might long for a happy ending. We want to believe in them. And above all, we want to believe that the story of our lives is going to have that happy ending. But we're frightened that it might not. See, we know that life can often be cruel and harsh. And so we try to prepare ourselves for the worst rather than hoping for the best. We're scared that our lives might not have that happy ending. And so actually, we sometimes get angry when people try to sell us a happy ending in a film or in a book or in a story. Because we think that happy ending might be based on a lie. So what are we to make of the book of Ruth? It has a happy ending. Does that mean it's just a simplistic story, a story for optimists? I mean, it's just a bit of wish fulfilment on the part of ancient Israelites. Sort of an equivalent of a Mills and Boone romance written 3,000 years ago. See, the problem for a Christian is that the book of Ruth is not the only story in the Bible that has a happy ending. Most of the narrative in the Bible comes about to an end with a positive resolution, with God often taking centre stage in that story. And, and I have met people who, who hate that about the Bible. I was talking to one non-Christian friend of mine a few years ago who was really struggling through a lot of very, very difficult questions. And I thought to myself, I want to point this guy to the book of Job in the Bible. And for those of you who don't know that book, it's perhaps the most honest and direct confrontation with suffering in the whole of the Bible. And I thought it might help my friend to see that a believer like Job had similar questions to the ones that he had. But the thing was, my friend had already looked 
at the book of Job and he knew how it ended. He said to me, that book has got a happy ending. Job gets everything back that he lost. But what about me? What about my happy ending? See, happy endings just don't seem to measure up to our experiences here on earth. So can we trust them? Can we trust this happy ending in the book of Ruth? Well, I want us to see this morning that, that we can. So the book of Ruth doesn't have a happy ending just as an act of wish fulfillment or to give us a bit of a lift at the end of this story. See, the happy ending in the book of Ruth tells us important things about the God of the Bible, the God of the book of Ruth, and about his purposes for the people who trust in him. Because you see, not only does Ruth have a happy ending, the big story of the Bible, the overall narrative of God's word, also has a happy ending for God's people. See, according to the Bible, God's purposes for his people are good. And he will give them a happy ending. Life with him, life with a loving and glorious God in a new creation prepared for us by Jesus Christ. And again, the Bible is really clear. That is not just wish fulfillment on behalf of Christians. The Bible insists that that glorious future is real. It is waiting for every one of Jesus' followers. And it is dependent on the work of Christ, the faithfulness of God, and the love of God. We don't deserve that happy ending. We haven't earned it. It is all dependent on God's willingness and ability to deliver it. And I hope we'll see this morning that just as the living God was able to deliver a happy ending for Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and the whole nation of Israel, so he's able to keep his promise to us today that he has in store for his people a glorious future at the end of our lives or when Christ returns, whichever comes sooner. That God has in store for his people a happy ending just as he had for Ruth in this story. So let's turn to chapter 4 now and just see the end of Ruth's story here. And just to sort of summarise where we've come to in this series. Back in Ruth chapter 1, Ruth, she's a woman from Moab, we've already heard Marisa tell us this today, and she chooses to leave her homeland and devote herself to her mother-in-law Naomi after the death of both their husbands. More than that, she devotes herself to Naomi's God, to the God of Israel. And Naomi is bitter and empty after the death of her husband and her two sons. And she returns to Bethlehem in the belief that God's hand is against her. But in chapter 2, things begin to improve for these two widows. Ruth goes to work in the field of a farmer called Boaz, who turns out to be a relative of Naomi and is a kind and generous man. He provides for Ruth and Naomi until Naomi urges Ruth to go to him and ask him to take Ruth as his wife. So Ruth does that in chapter 3. She risks her reputation and her safety and she goes to Boaz in the middle of the night at the threshing floor and asks him to marry her and to rescue Naomi from poverty. And out of a transparent love for Ruth, Boaz agrees to do that. But we saw last week that there was a problem at the end of chapter 3. Boaz was not the closest relative of Naomi in Bethlehem. There was another man in the town. He had a stronger claim to buy back Naomi's land and to marry Ruth into the bargain. And Boaz, at the end of chapter 3, resolves to go to this man and settle the matter once and for all. And that's what we find Boaz up to in chapter 4, verse 1. 
Just read that for us. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Now we saw last week that a kinsman redeemer was someone who could rescue a family from dying out. If a family was without any children, or if it was too poor, that it might be forced to sell its land, the law allowed for a relative to step in and act as a kinsman redeemer. And that kinsman redeemer could buy back the land for the family, and if need be, he could marry the widow involved and try to keep the family name alive by producing children with her. See, Boaz was a possible kinsman redeemer for Naomi and Ruth. But this other man, in verse 1, was a closer relative, and he had first refusal of the land and of Ruth. And we saw in chapter 3 that Boaz, well, Boaz clearly wants to marry Ruth. He wants to act as this redeemer. And the other kinsman redeemer stands in the way of his hopes. And we saw that Boaz could have tried to marry Ruth in secret, maybe take his chances with this other relative. But Boaz is an honourable man, and he insists on obeying the law and giving this closer relative the chance to act as redeemer. And that is a real problem in this story. See, we know from chapter 3, verse 11, that the whole town of Bethlehem knows of Ruth's noble character. Surely this other relative will have heard of her. He will like what he has heard, and he will want to marry her. And as they always properties up for sale, well, any man in a community like Bethlehem is going to jump at the chance of increasing his land in this way. See, Boaz's insistence on doing the right thing looks like it will lose him both the land and the woman that he loves. And the question we might ask at the end of chapter 3 is, well, isn't Boaz being just a bit too noble for his own good? Shouldn't he actually just look like for himself here? Is he maybe giving up too easily? Well, I hope we can see in verses 1 to 10 that Boaz does not give up easily. See, Boaz actually is determined to get Ruth for his wife and to look after Naomi as a redeemer. And this, in some detail, the writer describes how Boaz takes the initiative. He really takes charge in this situation. Now, again, this is a very alien description to us today. And actually, verse 7 of chapter 4 tells us that the original readership of Ruth also would have struggled to understand everything that was going on with the sandals exchange, etc. But as we look over what happens, we can see that Boaz really is clear and deliberate in what he's doing here. See, in verses 3 to 4, he first offers the property that belonged to Naomi to the other man with no mention of Ruth. And the other man understandably jumps at the chance. All he thought he would have to do is buy the land. He knows Naomi is old. He probably won't be asked to marry her. Even if he is asked to marry her, well, she can't have children anyway. So he just waits till she dies and he gets the land. So it's a pretty good deal for this other redeemer. But then in verse 5, Boaz mentions for the first time the existence of Ruth. And this redeemer would have to marry Ruth and try to have children with her to ensure that Naomi's family would survive what had happened to them. And suddenly, redeeming this piece of land is a lot less appealing to the other redeemer. This relative knew that after he bought the piece of land, if he would have any children with Ruth, he would have to give the land back to that child. On top of that, his own estate would be divided up among more children. Ruth's children would have a share in his estate, but his children 
would have no share in Naomi's estate. And on top of that, he would have to take this old and bitter woman, Naomi, into his home, and it would be just another mouth to feed for as long as she lives. See, the man sees there is a cost involved in redeeming this land, and he chooses not to take that path. Verse 6, At this the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And the way is now open for Boaz to step forward, redeem the land, and marry Ruth, which he immediately announces he's going to do. See, there was a cost in redeeming this land, a cost in redeeming Naomi's family from poverty and oblivion. And the other redeemer wasn't prepared to pay that price. But Boaz was. And because of that, the writer of Ruth records Boaz's name. But this other redeemer, we don't know what he was called. He is forgotten in the history of Israel. See, Boaz has once more shown himself to be a faithful and godly man of integrity. And by the end of this chapter, we're going to see that God rewards him with a pivotal role in his eternal purposes. So Boaz redeems Naomi and Ruth from poverty. And more importantly, maybe to us, who've watched the two of them over the course of the book, Boaz also marries Ruth. And perhaps surprisingly, the people of Bethlehem rejoice at this marriage in verses 11 to 12. So we have to remember here that Ruth is not an Israelite. She comes from Moab, Israel's hated enemy. Maurice's analogy is a brilliant one, actually. That's almost like a Jew marrying a Palestinian. It was really frowned upon in those days. But the blessing of the people of Bethlehem here demonstrates that Ruth is now welcomed into their community. Ruth now belongs to the people of God. She's no longer an outsider. She's no longer referred to as Ruth the Moabites, as she's generally referred to in this book. No, now the people of Bethlehem refer to her as the woman, or this young woman. And she is compared to some of the great women in Israel's past, to Rachel and to Leah, the wives of Jacob, to Tamar, another foreign woman who joined the people of God and fathered one of Boaz's ancestors. See, Ruth is now accepted by the people of Bethlehem, and she is invited by Boaz to be his wife. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. I want to see, this is God working here. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi tries to send Ruth back to Moab with the blessing, may the Lord grant that you find rest in the home of another husband. Naomi insists she will not find that by staying with her. Ruth must go back to Moab. But Ruth refused. Ruth stayed with Naomi. By staying with her, it looked like madness. It looked like she had turned her back on any chance of being married and having children. But now, finally, in chapter 4, Ruth has found rest in the home of a husband. Her decision to stay with Naomi, to place her future in the hands of Naomi's God, is being rewarded by God here. And more than finding another husband, Ruth and Boaz are quickly blessed with a child. That's the second part of verse 13. Then Boaz went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. See, this son is explicitly described as a gift from God, and the story draws to an end with this gift of the Lord actually becoming a gift to Naomi. Naomi receives a son in Ruth chapter 4. 
Again, you look back at chapter 1 and Naomi asks bitterly in verse 11, am I going to have any more sons? Well, clearly not. It's impossible. She's too old. She knows that. It's a bitter question. But here, in Ruth 4, the impossible happens. Ruth presents her son to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and the women of Bethlehem who witnessed Naomi's return in emptiness and bitterness and anger at God now celebrate God's goodness towards her. Verses 14 to 15. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. See, God has transformed Naomi's emptiness and bitterness here. Now the future of Naomi's family is secure and she loves Ruth and Boaz's son as if he were her own. Now we've said throughout this book that the book of Ruth is a love story but actually it's maybe a bit surprising then that the word love only appears once in the whole book. It's mentioned in verse 15 of chapter 4 and it's not to describe Boaz's love for Ruth or vice versa as we might expect. Instead, it is to describe Ruth's love for Naomi. That that is a love greater than that of seven sons. See, Ruth has been the demonstration of God's love and compassion to Naomi ever since chapter 1. And the women of Bethlehem don't want Naomi to forget that. So we've seen in the last two chapters, Boaz frequently is described in such a way as to be a picture of God's love. For his people. But here the person embodying God's love is Ruth. And the person receiving God's love is Naomi. The old, bitter, angry Naomi has been transformed by God into a woman who has received remarkable grace and kindness from Ruth. Ruth keeps giving to Naomi in this book. She gives grain to her in chapter 2. She brings more grain in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, Ruth gives her a son. Naomi's life is transformed by Ruth's love because Ruth's love is actually an expression of God's love for Naomi. So we come to the end of this story. Boaz and Ruth are married. Naomi is cared for and has a grandson she loves as if he were her own son. All's well that ends well at the end of this story. But again, the story doesn't actually end there. Because right at the end, there's actually an unexpected twist in verse 17. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. As Maurice has already shared with us this morning, this family in Bethlehem actually has a huge role to play in God's purposes. Obed is the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of David, and David is King David, the greatest king Israel would ever have, and a man after God's own heart. See, suddenly, right at the end of this book, we see that it's not just a nice love story set in Bethlehem. It's not even just a picture of God's love for his people. No, the book of Ruth describes how a seemingly insignificant and unpromising pair of women were used by God to play a vital role in his eternal purposes. You see, Ruth and Naomi's story is not as small as it first appears. 
Instead, it is part of God's grand plan, his salvation history. The story of how God has worked throughout history in the lives of nations and individuals to bring his son, Jesus, into the world to rescue people for himself. So in one sense, you could give this book of Ruth the title, The Coming of the King. Because God has used Ruth and Boaz to bring Israel's greatest king into the world. This king's family background turns out to be a bit surprising. He has a Moabite-esque great-grandmother. His great-grandmother is a Gentile. And we're going to see in a moment why that is such an important part of this story. But we're going to see that this is so key to God's purposes. And he invites this family to play a part in that. So as we come to the end of our time in the book of Ruth this morning, what is the significance of this story for us today? Why is this small and seemingly insignificant book in the Bible at all? Well, I want us to see there are at least three central truths the book of Ruth teaches us with a directness that we need to listen to. Firstly, the book of Ruth teaches us, as we saw a few weeks ago, God works through the ordinary faithfulness of his ordinary people. See, throughout this series, we've looked at the characters in Ruth largely as pictures of God's love for his people. And we've seen that Boaz's love for Ruth, Ruth's love for Naomi, they're pictures of God's love for Israel. And for us, of Christ's love for the church. And there's much they can teach us about God's character and his love. But we need to remember something, even as we do that. Ruth and Boaz and Naomi would not have thought of themselves like that. To them, their lives would not have looked special at all. Their lives seemed very ordinary, even mundane to themselves. We need to remember these are ordinary people. They're not prophets or priests or kings. They lived ordinary lives in a small time. But see how God used them through their ordinary lives for his purposes. Through Ruth's ordinary life, God demonstrated his character to the grieving Naomi. Through Boaz's ordinary life, God demonstrated his character to the foreigner, Ruth. And through the ordinary lives of all three of them, God achieved his purposes for both Israel and for the world by bringing David into the world. Now we need to see Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, they are unique in God's purposes. None of us has the same role to play in salvation history. And we can't expect that God will treat us in the same way. We can't expect the same transformation or even exactly the same happy ending as Ruth has. But having said that, the characters in this book are reminders to us that God can and does use the ordinary lives of his people to achieve great things. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, God has called you to be an ambassador for Christ. And through our lives, even in the parts that seem unimportant, seem unspiritual, we can demonstrate God's character to those around us. We can be a picture of God to the people we meet. I mean, just think for a moment about how God demonstrates his character through these three people. He did so when they were at work. In chapter 2, Boaz demonstrates care for justice and mercy for both his employees in the field and for Ruth. At work, Boaz the farmer demonstrates the character of the God he trusts in. And the question for us is, well, what do people see of us when we 
are at work. Would those who work alongside us see something of the integrity and the mercy and the grace of God? And then Ruth, she worked hard to provide for herself and for Naomi, to care for Naomi. And in this she demonstrated the love and care of God. But what about us? Do we see our jobs, our care for our children, or the 101 little things we do in any given day as just mindless and insignificant in God's plans? Or will we see that in every moment of the day, in every interaction we have with our family, with our colleagues, with our friends, we are demonstrating something of the character of the God we trust in, whether we choose to or not. See, if we are abrupt or impatient with the people around us, then that is how people will see the God we trust in. If we don't care for the people around us, that is how people will see the God that we follow. If we seek to be patient, to be caring, to take time for people, then that is how people will see the God we trust in. See, just like the characters in Ruth, our working lives are far from insignificant. Instead, they speak volumes about God and they can powerfully demonstrate his character. And following on from that, God also demonstrates his character through our relationships. Again, Ruth's devotion to her mother-in-law, even that when that seemed like madness, even when that seemed to gain her nothing. Boaz's care for Ruth and Naomi, even when that was costly to him. Boaz and Ruth choosing to remain pure in their relationship, when they had ample opportunity to, to, to sleep together on that threshing floor, if they'd wanted to. See, the love and integrity of these characters showed that they were willing to love. And that took time and that cost each of them something. Ruth said goodbye to her land and her family. Boaz's care for these women cost him greatly. Boaz and Ruth chose to remain pure, even when at that point it was far from certain that they were going to get married at all. Again, the challenge for us is what costs are we willing to bear to demonstrate Christ's love in our relationships? See, Ruth and Boaz stand as huge rebukes to me in my unwillingness to make sacrifices to demonstrate who God is. When I'm in the mood, when I have the time, when I like the people involved, then I feel as if my relationship with them can show something of Christ's character. But when that looks like too much hard work, then I'm very quick not to bother. See, I need to learn from Ruth and Boaz here. God can use every one of my relationships with people to demonstrate his character, and I need to recognize that and pray for the strength and the grace to use those opportunities. To listen to someone when I don't have the time. To care for someone when that seems to gain nothing on my part. See, it's at times when our love is most costly that we demonstrate Christ's love and Christ's grace most clearly to people. And following on from that, we need to see that our lives can reflect God's love and care in the midst of suffering. We saw that back in chapter 1. Ruth's devotion to Naomi came at a time when Naomi was suffering. She was bitter. She was empty. And she felt God was distant from her. And Ruth's love and care for Naomi was used by God to bring Naomi back into a loving relationship with him. God used Ruth to demonstrate his love to a suffering Naomi. 
And God uses us to do the same when we know people are suffering. As a church, we need to be willing to care for those who are suffering among us. And actually, I know that many of us already do that. This is one of the privileges of working for a church, that you hear a lot about the quiet and unspectacular things people do for one another to care for one another when they are suffering. I know of people who devote themselves to a struggling brother or sister, of people who are willing to listen to angry or hurting questions and not to run away from that. Of people who pray for others when that person cannot pray for themselves. See, that is quiet love. That is unspectacular love. But that is love that can transform lives when the living God is behind it. Prayers that can transform lives as God answers those prayers in his way and to his glory. We need to pray that God might use us to display his character even in the midst of suffering, whether we are suffering or whether those we love and care about are suffering. Because God may be calling you to be the physical evidence of his love for someone when no other evidence will convince them of that. So the book of Ruth tells us God chooses to work through ordinary people. It encourages us God will bring about his eternal purposes for the world. God brings David into the world through this family. Through David, God will bring Jesus into the world. And just as David rescued Israel from chaos and destruction at the time of the judges, so Jesus entered our world to rescue us from chaos and destruction and lovelessness and pride and selfishness and ultimately death by coming into the world. He came into the world as a descendant of Ruth. Ruth was used by God to bring about his eternal purposes. And so can we be. See, Jesus entered our world to usher in a new world, a new kingdom, and that kingdom is the kingdom of God. And we see that kingdom at work in the lives of God's people when they are transformed from hopeless, loveless men and women into Christ-like men and women. And we also see that kingdom all around the world today. Just as the Moabites Ruth was welcomed by God into his family, so God invites people from all nations to come to him and put their trust in Christ. Ruth here is a sign of things to come in the Bible. Even a widow from Moab, even a Gentile like Ruth, can come to know the living God. And even sinful people in Oxford in the 21st century can come to know the living God. We have the privilege to be part of God's kingdom and to play a role in inviting others into God's kingdom. And that is a purpose that is worth living for. But finally, this morning, as we leave the book of Ruth, I want us to see, as we've seen throughout, that this book shows us that God is a God of love. We've seen throughout this series that the book of Ruth is at its heart a love story. The love Boaz has for Ruth, the love Ruth has for Naomi, are pictures for us of the love God has for his people. But as we leave it, I want us to see that the love God has for his people, while it is similar in some ways to the love people have for one another, it is far, far greater than the love any person can have 
for another. God's love is greater than any human love. And as much as we can learn from it, from a human love story like Ruth, we need to recognise just how vast and praiseworthy and different God's love really is. You see, Boaz loved Ruth because there was actually something lovely about Ruth. Ruth loved Naomi because sometime in the past, Naomi had shown great kindness and warmth to Ruth. God loves us even though there is absolutely nothing lovely about us. Even though we have never shown kindness or warmth towards him. We can learn about God's love for his people through fine examples of human love, but we need ultimately to see God's love is different. God did not love us because of our personality or because we are useful to him. God was not bowled over by our smile or our beauty or our kindness. God did not love us because he couldn't imagine living without us. See, if we think like that, we are falling into the trap of sentimentalizing God's love and of exalting ourselves. You see, God loves us even though we are ugly, rebellious sinners who hated him and ignored him and rejected him. God loves us even though he knew that we are selfish and cruel and proud people. God loves us not because of anything in ourselves that would attract his love. No, God loves us because it is his very nature to love. God loves us because he is God and we are sinners. He is God, but he is a God of grace. He demonstrates his grace towards us every day by listening to our prayers, by forgiving us for the umpteenth time for that same attitude, that same sin that keeps on happening. He bears with us and sustains us and goes on forgiving us because it is in his very nature to love undeserving people like us. And the ultimate demonstration of his grace and his love was at that cross of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to suffer, to die for undeserving people that we might live as forgiven people as people transformed from ugliness into beauty in God's sight. 